Chapter One of The Perfect Frame by William Ard. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Ben Tucker. The Perfect Frame by William Ard. Chapter One. I said, Yes, ma'am, my name is Timothy Dane. And those were the first and last words of pure truth spoken in my office that afternoon. She said her name was Evelyn Huntington. Mrs. Walter Huntington. She said she had married Walter Huntington six months ago and separated from him four weeks later. Walter, she said, drank. He had strange habits. She patted a tissue-thin handkerchief to her eye as she told me about the night she had found a brassiere in Walter's overcoat pocket. She crossed her legs. She said I knew the type of man Walter was without going into all the details. Lurid ones. She adjusted her skirt. Did I know what it was like, she asked, to be, well, considered attractive and be put through an experience like that? It was awful, she said. I just sat there and stared across my desk at her and didn't say anything. She was that pretty. She told me that naturally she knew how busy I was. Then I thought, you know something I don't. I told her that I didn't generally handle divorces, which wasn't a lie because I didn't generally have any to handle. Oh, she didn't want to divorce Walter. That wasn't it. She was here because she was frightened and because Walter might be in some kind of trouble. You mean, I asked, something aside from yourself? What? Nothing, I said. She said she knew she wasn't giving me much to go on, but would I help her? Then she took a deep breath and her fine young bosom heaved. I switched my gaze to the tip of my thumb and asked her who had sent her up here and what exactly was her problem. There was a silence and when I looked up she was watching me with a strange look on her face as though she were about to say something she wasn't supposed to. But then her face composed itself and she told me that she had opened the classified to the private detective listings, closed her eyes, and made a jab with a pencil. When she opened her eyes again, there was a black dot between the words Dane and Timothy. I grunted and went back to looking at my thumb. I said, Just how can I help you, Mrs. Huntington? Oh, you're wonderful, she said. Her light blue eyes were round and earnest, and the bodice of her beguiling black dress rose and fell again, emotionally. She did that very well, and my own eyes cheered her on. What she wanted me to do was visit a place called the Harmony Bar. It was over on the east side, at 21st Street and 3rd Avenue. Why? She gave me that strange look again and said that was what she wanted me to find out. Why? She said she had gotten a message in the morning mail. A note it was. It advised her to be at the Harmony Bar that night if she wanted to learn something important about her husband, Walter Huntington. That sounds very much like divorce business, I said. I don't think it is, she answered. Why? She said she just had a feeling, that's all. I asked her who the note was from. She said it wasn't signed. I asked to see the note. She said she lost it. I smiled. This isn't a divorce mill, I reminded her. I don't snoop around wayward husbands, no matter how many overcoats they stuff with brassiers. It isn't for a divorce, she insisted. But Walter is still my husband, and I'm worried about him. I'm afraid to go down to that place by myself, she said. Oh, wouldn't I please, please help her? I turned in my swivel and looked out the window, out toward the buildings that stretched for the sky and above them in the blue springtime that blanketed the city. But that didn't make me any less aware of that girl at my back. Blonde she was. Honey blonde and cool. 
At first glance, cool, but beneath the coolness was an honesty, or innocence, if the word doesn't gag you, that made the other thing seem like a veneer, a defense against something. When you looked beyond the covering, she was a beautiful girl from somewhere that was simple and uncomplicated, not at all like New York. But she had come here with a magic wand that was supposed to set the big town on its ear. What had gone wrong? She certainly had the build to work magic. It was a display figure, stacked carefully and generously. A figure to be shown to men and to be admired, to be inventoried, and, if it came to that, to be bargained for. She looked like she could be anything she wanted to be. But what had gone wrong? I swung back to her and said I would help her if I could. But saying I would help her didn't, for some reason, seem to make her happy. I had the unusual feeling that she had changed her mind, that she wished I had turned her down. Then she smiled and said, Fine, would I go there tonight? And if nothing happened tonight, would I go back to the Harmony Bar tomorrow night? That was all, so she told me that she could afford. How much would I charge for two nights' work? I looked into her wide blue eyes and thought about the rent that wasn't paid. I thought about the shirt on my back and the clean one, the last clean one, in the bureau drawer in my room. I thought about the no-nonsense letter in this morning's mail from the telephone company. I remembered, as if it was something you're likely to forget, that this pretty girl was the nearest thing to a client I had seen in three long weeks. I looked at her and said, Fifty dollars, casually. Fifty? She seemed surprised. I opened my mouth to say forty, but she spoke first. Well, she said, that's certainly reasonable. And taking a neat roll from her purse, she laid five new ten-dollar bills on my desk. Another hundred or more went back into the purse, and I sighed. She asked me if I understood what I was supposed to do. I answered that I guessed all I would do was go down to this bar and see who it was that wanted to see her. Yes, she said. Just find out what kind of a place it is. See what's going on that concerns Walter Huntington. I'll call you in the morning. Then she stood up, uncertainly, and hesitated before my desk for a moment. You seem like a nice person, she said. Are you happily married? No, I said. I'm not even unhappily married. It must be wonderful, she said, to be married to a man and make him happy. She turned and walked out of my office, swaying her nice up-tilted behind at me. If the day ever comes, I said silently to the behind, that you can't make a man happy. That's when we all shave our curly locks and join a lamazery. End of chapter one. Chapter two of The Perfect Frame by William Ard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Chapter two. How much is one dollar? One dollar is the price of a cab from my office at Broadway and 44th Street to the bar on 3rd Avenue and 21st Street, where I would keep a date for Evelyn Huntington. Half of it is the price of a whiskey and water when I got there. One dollar is only a single buck, to be spent without thinking on all the trivial incidents that attend a man's daily business. Also, one dollar is the price Charlie Fong charges to launder five shirts for a bachelor. One dollar is one of the meals at Child's. No appetizer, no dessert. One dollar is a whole buck. And a whole buck comes hard when you're fighting desperately to hang on in the world's toughest city at the kind of work you want to do. I should be at 30, and with a law degree, an eager junior partner in some pine-paneled Madison Avenue law firm. I should be, if not that, the bright-eyed law clerk to Judge Reynolds in Washington, as he keeps asking me to be, and getting my hands into that lush political mud pie. 
I should be living in three modern rooms in Georgetown or Scarsdale or Shaker Heights or just outside Los Angeles. But I'm not any of those things or in any of those places. I'm a starving private detective in one room on the third floor rear of a converted brownstone fire trap on 53rd Street, where I'm lullabied to sleep each night by 25 Dixieland bands blaring along 52nd Street Strip Row. And I'm not taking any dollar cab over to 3rd Avenue. I'm walking, and I'm almost there. And the broken neon sign reads Harmony Bar. The place has been carved out of a warehouse that rises behind it, and it hides under black nighttime shadows of the 3rd Avenue L, which it should because it's the crummiest dive I've ever walked into. And that, kiddies, is crummy. The bar is scarred and dirty, and the glass of beer that the weasel-faced, dirty-necked bartender sets down is smeared and unwashed. There are three dirty tables next to the bar, covered by dirty checkered cloths, and if there were any customers sitting at them, I'm sure they'd be dirty-necked, too. But as it is, it's just me and the bartender, and he doesn't like my looks any more than I like his. This is the first time I've ever felt conspicuous because my shirt is clean and my suit is freshly pressed. There's nothing strange about such a filthy bar on the east side of New York, and the only reason I mentioned it is that Evelyn Huntington must have been intuitive about not wanting to come down here. It is no place for a girl. Not even a tawny-skinned rumbler on Okinawa, and their hair below a mainline debutante, would walk a marine gunner, and their hair above a marine general, into a derelict trap like the Harmony Bar. I stared down into the flat slush in the glass, knowing I would never drink it, and then decided to do something this place had never seen. I went back to wash my hands and hoped that the alleged message writer would show up while I was gone. When I stepped out of the john, I gave the back of the place a quick look. To the rear was a shadowy, grime-streaked wall hung from ceiling to floor at the far end with a painter's tarpaulin. That's all there was to the back, and all that was up front were the tables, the bar, and the bomb behind it. And a customer. Or maybe he wasn't a customer. He had taken his place at the empty bar directly behind my untasted beer, and he was a very big man. Big from the floor, where his big feet were planted to the bristling top of his close-cropped black hair. Big in the chest in the hands, in the face, big from the slope of one thick shoulder clear across to the other. The mahogany-colored mole on his forehead was bigger than my eye. I didn't keep on walking toward him to make an issue out of my beer, but to find out why he thought he had to guard it, and to find out where he had appeared from. The little bell over the door hadn't tinkled while I was gone. God knows he hadn't been there before. I was very polite. I said, if that beer is in your way, I'll move it and I reached for it, but stopped because his thick fist wrapped itself around the glass. He had watched me, scowling, all the way across the room, scowling and thinking, and it made cavernous wrinkles in his forehead. "'You want this beer, Mac?' he said, and the voice was a rolling growl from somewhere deep inside a keg-like chest. I shook my head and grinned up at him. "'How'd you like this beer?' he asked. "'Right in your kisser.' Glass and all, Mac. I wouldn't like that, I admitted, and waited. He eyed me with a tight grin across his broad face, and I watched his mammoth fingers tighten on the glass. But he didn't lift it from the wood, and we just stood there like that, eye to eye, for more seconds. Eh, let the bastard have it, Bull. The bartender's voice was a low, nervous whine in the room. What the hell are you stalling for? Bull's eyes didn't waver from my face. He lifted the glass of beer slowly. Then his left arm swept out suddenly, snatched my right arm in a vice, and jerked me toward him with a force that almost pulled me off the floor. 
His hand slipped down my arm to my wrist, and with a sharp upward twist, he doubled it back in a good hammerlock. "'Want that beer now, Mac?' he snarled close to my ear. I could feel the tendons snapping up and down my forearm. "'It's going to break,' I told him. His answer was to force my arm tighter, and I began to chew on my lower lip, trying to stay as erect as I could to move with the last extra push he would give my arm. "'Don't you want that beer now, Mac?' "'No.' You sure? He brought my wrist as high as my shoulder blades. Then the real pain was shooting up and down my arm and into my side. It's going to break, I said again. Drink! No. He snorted and dropped my wrist. It fell of its own accord and hung there beside me. His right hand grabbed my shirt and tie and the fist came up under my jaw, jamming the back of my head against the wall. He pulled me forward and did it again. I came off the wall with my knee raised high and plunged it deep and hard into his groin. The big man gasped loudly and bent over like the blade in a jackknife, the back of his neck directly below me. But I couldn't lift my right arm to hit him, and that cost me the round and the fight. Something swung from behind the bar, cracked against the base of my skull, and the dirty room went all purple and yellow before my eyes. I should have let myself fall immediately, but I didn't, and the bartender had a second shot at me. That one toppled me across the bull who was getting over the nausea, and he stood erect, pulled me back up with his hands under the lapels of my jacket, and rammed me into the wall again. And another time. The shock of it began to clear my head and help my eyes focus. Don't you crummy Seamuses ever get enough? The bull was angry about something. What's a Seamus? I mumbled. What's enough? The wall met my head with a sick thud. What's your pal Jameson got? He roared. That's enough! Jameson. If I'd been able to speak again, I might have asked it aloud. If I'd been able to think, I'd have wondered what the hell my client had sucked me into. The bull was shoving painfully against my Adam's apple, convincing me that I'd been taken for a ride by a beautiful blonde with a hypnotic behind. I was a shill. You ought to get what Jameson got, he was saying. He swung me out of the corner and swept me along toward the door. The bartender, grinning out of a face with teeth missing, rushed around to see how he could help, but the bull didn't need any. With his free hand, he opened the door, and then with both hands, he threw me out, backwards onto Third Avenue. I landed on my shoulder, but not full enough to keep my skull from cracking hard against the concrete sidewalk. Until the party that sent you, the bull shouted from the doorway, to keep you and every other crummy snoop the hell away from here. Next time, Mac, he warned me, I get rough. The bartender's ugly little head peered from behind the other man's mountainous bulk. Next time, Dirty Neck screamed. We fix you good, you lousy good-for-nothing bastard. The door to the Harmony Bar closed. I had the sidewalk on 3rd Avenue all to myself. <laughs> Next time, I thought, getting slowly to my feet and grimacing at my dirt-smeared suit. I get smarter. When I found I could stand without reeling like a drunk, I edged toward the doorway again. I wanted to take another long look at what had happened to me, but the bull was nowhere to be seen inside. Wherever he had come from five minutes ago, he was there again. And if it was magic, the bartender wasn't as impressed as I was. He was sitting behind the bar again, calmly reading the pink edition of tomorrow's morning's news. I could make out the headline clearly from the street, but it didn't say where the bull was. A lot of things climbed in and out of the wood inside the harmony, but nothing the size of him. I knew if I walked inside, it would bring him out. 
but what was still operating among my scrambled brains told me that it would bring me out again, too, right out on the Third Avenue. End of Chapter 2 Chapter 3 of The Perfect Frame by William Ard The Slibbervox Recordings in the Public Domain Read by Ben Tucker Chapter 3 As I turned north along 3rd toward 22nd Street, I had a lot of unanswered questions in my mind, all of them starting and ending with Evelyn Huntington. But I could find out why she had sent me down here at my leisure. The pressing problem, literally pressing and banging inside my tender skull, was the bull. Where had he come from? Where had he gone? And what was he watching in a dirty little dive like Harmony? Why did a fire trap like that one need a bouncer, especially a bouncer as efficient as the bull? In spite of everything else I thought about him, I had to admit he had talent. For all his mammoth size, he moved like a slick cat. And unlike most men in the 250-pound-plus class, he knew how to make every ounce of it count. He was a muscle boy with sharp coordination, and somebody was paying a nice fee for the use of those muscles. In the wrestling racket alone, he'd have made himself a soft 200 a week. Somebody was making it worthwhile to keep him off television. And if he was guarding the Harmony, how was I going to lure him out of there long enough to find out what it was? In case of emergency, says the telephone directory, call the police. What made me think of the police? Me, of all people. And what did the police make me think of? It was something about that bartender. Something he had been reading in the news. It was the headline in the news that I had read. I stopped at the newsstand on the corner of 22nd and spent three cents for a copy of my own. The headline was Police Hunt Bronx Strangler, and below it was a five-column picture of a woman draped like a rag doll over a very must-up bed. Under the picture I read, All police units in the city were alerted in the search for the madman rapist who entered the apartment of Miss Tilly Bartell above in the Bronx, attacked her, and then strangled her to death as she fought valiantly for her honor. Story on page three. What story was left? I reread it, knowing damn well that Third Avenue and 22nd Street is a long way from the Grand Concourse in the Bronx. And probably the bull hadn't been near the Bronx since the Giants were home last, which was over a week ago. Still, it was worth a try. Anything is worth at least one try, except maybe a rumbler on Okinawa, or so a marine gunner told me. I glanced up at 22nd Street, and in my mind I could see the two dull green lights out in front of the 13th Precinct, two short blocks to the east. The news said, All police units were alerted. Let's see if that took in the 13th Precinct. I ducked into an all-night candy store, dropped my dime, and dialed operator. Give me the nearest police station, life or death. She plugged me in immediately. 13th Precinct, said the bored voice. Sergeant Winkler. The Strangler! I gasped. The Bronx Strangler. He's in the Harmony Bar. The what? Where? I came down two octaves. The guy who strangled the dame in the Bronx tonight. He's in the Harmony Bar. H is in Henry. A is in Apple. I know where it is. He was excited now. He's there now, I shouted back. Insane drunk, armed to the teeth. He's yelling at the top of his lungs. He says every cop in New York City's a yellow son of a... He did! The receiver slammed against my eardrum, and by the time I was out of the booth, out of the store, and back on the street, the cops were charging down 22nd. Two green and white cars overtook the footmen at 3rd Avenue and leaped down to 21st, sirens screaming. A third and fourth carload screeched to a stop right behind them, and more cops running filled 3rd Avenue. 
still buttoning on their hardware and swinging those nasty little black sappers. I followed them leisurely, like a man out walking his dog, except that he had no dog, and took up a spot in the doorway opposite the good old Harmony Bar. It was better than a seat on the 50-yard line of the old Army Notre Dame fracas, and I didn't need a program to tell who the players were. This much can be said for the bull. Whoever was paying him had told him to keep all cops out, whether they were private and came one at a time, or public, precinct at a time. With a bottle in each tremendous mitt, he met the first blue squad in the doorway, and back they fell. But when the squad grew to a platoon, the blues swarmed inside. The ape gave ground dearly, only one foot a minute, and those yard arms hanging from his shoulders swung about him murderously, dropping eager policemen in every direction. But then they sent a flanking line over the bar itself, and this crew immediately tipped the furniture, beer spigots, bartender, and all into the center of the small room. That narrowed the bull's fighting room to a couple of feet, and suddenly his great head disappeared from view below an ocean of blue-coated shoulders. He had definitely resisted arrest, if that's the word I'm looking for. This much can be said for the police. They may not dress as pretty as the Mounties, and they may not always get the right man, but when the desk sergeant tells them to hop down to the Harmony Bar and get any man, my George, they get him. And the only reason they got the bull alive was that the coward became unconscious before he became a corpse. Now they were dragging him out heels aloft, and his skull was bouncing along the same pavement that the back of my head knew so well. The harmony was a shambles, and my heart was breaking to see the bartender lift himself to his feet and stare around dazedly at the wreckage. Then he put on his hat and coat, closed the door carefully behind him, locked it, and headed in the direction of the Bowery, where I imagined he slept in some diamondite flea bag. When his back had disappeared into the shadows of Third Avenue, I crossed over and let myself inside. I have no secret knowledge of locks. It was just a matter of lifting the door as far as it would go on its hinges and leaning against it gently. I stepped carefully over the broken glass and around the upended bar to find the place, wherever it was, that my boyo had disappeared to in between calls from me and the police. Something on the shelf of the bar caught my eye. Something that wasn't natural. It was a bottle of whiskey, and it hadn't been broken. It looked unhappy and alone, and I took it along with me on my search of the harmony. End of chapter 3 Chapter 4 of The Perfect Frame by William Ard This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker Chapter 4 Except for what had happened to the front of the old dump, it was still the same old dump as I poked around for the bull's hiding place. The sidewall had no hidden door, nor was there any exit in the bar area. The only way to leave the tiny john was the way I got in. That left only the rear wall, and sure enough, when I lifted the painter's tarpaulin, there was the door. I pushed it open and stepped through. Now I was in a warehouse, a huge barn-like place lighted by occasional dim bulbs. It was used to store a great many files and wire crates, and I came close to one of them to see who they belonged to. It said, in stencil, Property of Oceanic Brokerage Company, New York City. Somewhere, sometime, but only vaguely, I had heard of Oceanic. As the name implied, they were brokers. Insurance, as I recalled. And Oceanic meant marine. Marine insurance brokers. So what? Where did the bull figure? Did the big guy work for Oceanic? Insurance brokers stored old policies. That I knew, and probably kept night watchmen. But again, the bull was not the night watchman type. Night watchmen are old men who get paid 60 cents an hour to stay awake during the time when they can't sleep anyhow. But the bull was working for somebody. 
and for some reason this warehouse was where he kept coming from and going to. Now I was wondering if Evelyn Huntington hadn't been leveling with me all along. Maybe she didn't know anything about the bull. He might even be working for Walter Huntington, and she didn't know about that either. Maybe my business with her had nothing to do with the Jameson the bull had told me about. I wasn't a shill after all. Maybe. I pulled open one of the files, not expecting to find any answers, and I was right. The file held nothing but old policies from various insurance companies. They were the broker's copies, all plainly marked in red with a single word, cancelled. I lifted one out and studied it. It was a policy of an English insurance company that protected the White Circle tanker fleet for all hull damages up to $33 million. A hell of a lot of money. And this policy in my hand was only one of the several hundred in this particular file. I looked around. There must have been over 500 files and crates in the rooms, and maybe Oceanic Brokerage had other warehouses besides this one. It looked like a very healthy outfit, Oceanic, and hardly one that needed personnel like the character the cops had just hauled out of here. Nor did Evelyn Huntington, blue eyes and all, go with an operation as obviously dull and straight-laced as this huge brokerage firm seemed to be. But just to keep all the loose ends in order, I decided to call the Oceanic's claims man and see what ideas he had, whoever he was. He wouldn't have any, naturally, but he should be interested to know what was going on around his warehouse. And if some outside job ever came up, as they do, he might remember Timothy Dane. I let myself out of the Harmony Bar as I'd entered, except that the door wouldn't relock and I took the whiskey bottle with me. With all that had been spilled on the floor, who'd miss the court I was going to spill into me? The candy store from where I'd alerted the 13th Precinct was still open and the old man in the back gave me a bored look. Had some excitement down the street, I said. He shrugged, which is all you'll ever get on 3rd Avenue. I found the Oceanic brokerage number listed and got the night man on the wire. Everybody's gone home hours ago, he told me. Yes, he'd give me the name and the telephone of the company's claims agent. He's Mr. Robinson, he said. Plaza 2-1516. Robinson, I asked. That wouldn't be Jocko Robinson. The man didn't know about any Jocko, but the Oceanic Claims agent was Mr. Robinson. I thanked him and dialed the number. I almost didn't believe the voice that sounded a sleepy hello. But it could belong to nobody else but Jocko Robinson, the grim little Englishman who had been the top operative at the old Pioneer Agency in Chicago while I was learning the business. I gave him a big greeting. I called him an old jackass. What do you want, Dane? He asked flatly. What do I want? I laughed. Still the same old Jocko. Always happy to hear from his pals. Always ready for a party. How are you, boy? Dane, it's nice to hear from you. What do you want? I don't want anything, damn it. What's biting you? Don't tell me you got married. Look, Dane, I'm a respectable man. I work from nine to five now. What do you want? Okay, Jocko, the hell with you. What I'm calling about has to do with your nine to five oceanic job. We're full up, Dane. If a vacancy comes up, I'll keep you in mind. Well, you really, Mr. Robinson? Honest? Listen, Junior, if a vacancy comes up, you can take it and... Have you been drinking, Dane? Is that your trouble? Hold the line, Mr. Robinson. Don't go away. I held the bottle to my lips and took a good pull. Yes, you anemic little bastard, I said. I've been drinking. Now, does Oceanic have a warehouse on 3rd Avenue and 21st? A warehouse? He sounded much different, a little off guard. Why? You got a watchman there? Why? What's it to you, Dane? You got a watchman there? Why, Dane? What's there to watch? 
Don't you know, pal, maybe there is a job open down at Oceanic. Yours. What's this all about, Timothy? Why should an Oceanic warehouse cause you any trouble? Well, Jocko, since you put it that way, I was wondering if you knew that a guy about ten feet tall was doing a lousy public relations job for Oceanic down there. Really? I don't know of anyone that we have in that warehouse. Do you know what's in it? No, tell me. It's for cancelled policies, that's all. They're of no use to anybody. But the insurance laws say we have to keep them stored for twenty years. Why? Jocko Robinson explained. Protection from our clients, in case anything comes up that they might have been covered for when the policy was in effect. Maybe some seaman got something in his eye ten years ago, and it doesn't start bothering him until last week. Or maybe a ship sprung a small leak on a trip a few years back, and nobody finds out till tomorrow. But aside from that, these policies are worthless. Jocko Robinson paused for a moment, then he laughed, if that's what the sound was that came over the wire. <laughs> Even then, they're not much good to anybody. It takes some proving before we collect a loss on a cancelled policy. But the law says keep them, so we keep them. Is that what you called about? I wasn't even interested in the policies, I said. I just thought you might be interested in this character who hangs out in the warehouse. Well, you know Third Avenue, Dane. But thanks for the tip, old man. I'll have the police look into the place tomorrow. Good night. The police already looked into it, Jocko. What? They got the guy down at 13th Precinct. I don't know what he's booked for, but he was arrested on suspicion of murder. What? Murder? I laughed. Just a gag, Jocko, but he'll probably spend the night there or in some hospital. Is that so? Well, you certainly have strange tidings, Timothy. Well, good night. Before you go Betty by, Jocko, I just want to ask you one question, to convince myself of something. What now? I was just wondering if offhand you ever heard of anyone named Walter Huntington. There was silence on his end. Then quietly, why? You know him. I was amazed. Why? Now, look, Jocko, don't start that routine again. Who's Walter Huntington? Jocko was deciding something. Huntington is a vice president of the Oceanic Dane. But what's it to you? Good night, Jocko. Thanks. Dane, are you on a job? A job? What's a job, Jocko? I remember hearing the word in Chicago. The Pioneer Agency used to get things called jobs. What's Walter Huntington to you, Tim? Maybe I can help you. Now it was Tim. You already have, Mr. Robinson. Thanks again. Stop clowning, Tim. I meant that I might be able to help you pick up a few dollars investigating that warehouse setup. God knows I've got enough to keep me busy tracking down these claims every day. Maybe you'd stumbled onto something down there. You think so, Jocko? Who knows? Tell you what. I'll have you come up to see Mr. Forbes tomorrow morning. Mr. Forbes is president of Oceanic. Oh, that'll be nice. I'm trying to do your turn, Tim. Then you can tell Mr. Forbes what you suspect. What do I suspect, Jocko? That something is out of order at the warehouse. I'll recommend that you look into it. It ought to be a nice little job, Tim, and certainly very little effort. You think so, Jocko? This time he chuckled. It sounded like Scrooge before the Crockett's got to work on him. Believe me, Tim, there's nothing at Oceanic besides claims that need investigating. It's a very respectable operation. And you've got everything under control up there. I have everything under control. Everything, Timothy. Well, I'll see. What's that? I said, I'll see you tomorrow, Jocko. Have a good night's rest. Don't worry, Timothy. I shall.
Good night. And that, as they say, was that. Evelyn Huntington had used me as a decoy, and she didn't seem to care what risks she took so long as it was my body. And now my ex-partner, the guy I once stopped a thirty-eight slug for out in Chai, the guy who spent two weeks on his back after pulling me out of a hop joint on the south side, the guy I roomed with, ate with, lent money to, and borrowed money from, now Jocko Robinson was setting me up to shill for something else. Or thought he was. Maybe I thought Evelyn and Jocko were putting out feelers for the same game. But whatever the game was, I didn't have any idea. Not yet. It didn't matter so much about the blonde. Women always try to use men for one reason or another. But Jocko made me good and mad. So mad that I almost forgot to call this fellow Jameson. The one the bull had rearranged. I located his nightwire in the red book and a woman answered the phone cautiously. She said I couldn't speak to Mr. Jameson. Whatever it was, she said, Mr. Jameson wasn't interested. Who was she? She was Mrs. Jameson and she didn't care whether I wanted to help her husband or not. He wasn't interested. Right, I said. But tell your husband, for whatever it's worth to his morale, that the bull has gotten his. Mrs. Jameson said she'd tell him, but she didn't think it would interest him. He wasn't, she said, interested in anything anymore. He was very sick. His head hurt, and he had terrible pains in his stomach. He... She hung up abruptly, but not before I heard her crying into the mouthpiece and trying to hold it back. Wherever this thing led me, whoever else I was due to meet before the end of the line, I told myself to be sure to look after the bull's keeper. Personally. Professional courtesy, let's call it, to a private man named Jameson who was sick. I headed back uptown to my office, wondering what tomorrow would bring. The night guard took me up, and I asked him to wait. From my desk, I got a small white envelope, wrote the name Jezebel on it, put in $49.90 of Evelyn Huntington's money, and shoved the envelope into the safe. That made me feel much better. Sure it did. Now I could go home, and it would be like all the other nights. Not a client on the books. End of chapter 4《Chapter Five of the Perfect Frame by William Ard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Chapter Five. The telephone answering service, secretaries don't grow on trees, gave me two messages when I arrived back at my office the next morning. One was from Mr. Franklin Forbes of Oceanic Brokerage, and I was to call him at my convenience. The other was from a woman, no name and I was to call her immediately at Plaza 6-1000. I thanked the operator for the service and sat down to open my mail. The first letter was from the telephone answering service. All it had on it were some dates with figures next to them. Someone had written the word, Please, across the bottom, and underlined it dramatically. I filed it in the basket. The next letter was from the people who own this building. Very nice people. Very polite. Polite but firm. The next letter... Oh, hell, this goes on and on, and my reaction is always the same. Tengo no dinero, the little poem starts. Caramba, this is hell, it ends. Jerry the shoeshine boy dropped by with my copy of the Times. I asked him if he'd trade his news for it. He shrugged, Puerto Rican style, and thought he didn't like the idea. He wasn't sure if maybe I might not come into a quarter one of these days and want to shine. I got his paper, and he went along sadly with mine. This was a final edition of the news. The headline said, Nab Bronx Strangler, but they weren't talking about the bull. It was some other guy, and he'd been hiding in the basement of the Bronx apartment, and he'd made a full confession. I was almost back to the centerfold before the 13th precinct got a break. 
There was no picture of the bull. In fact, he wasn't even called the bull. He was Clarence. Sick erat scriptum. Hulbert. Police, said the brief story, arrested Clarence Hulbert last night on a charge of disturbing the peace. Hulbert, police said, used abusive language to an officer, and when asked to desist, he continued to be abusive and profane. Hulbert, police said, listed himself as unemployed and was booked on the additional charge of vagrancy. He was removed to Bellevue Hospital, but no further details were given. I added them up. Abusing a police officer, disturbing the peace, vagrancy, resisting lawful arrest. It came to at least six months, and I hoped that the Jamesons read about it. I thought about that for a few minutes, and about the honest scrub woman who hadn't nipped at the bottle of Seagram's in my desk drawer. It was just as I'd left it, a quarter full. I pulled the cap off and took a mouthful, and almost choked to death. It was plain water. Terrible stuff. The thieving scrubwoman had drained my precious liquid and poured back water. That made me feel good enough to return the urgent call to Plaza 61000, and the no-name woman who answered was, of course, Evelyn. She sounded nervous. Are you all right? she asked. Shouldn't I be? I don't know. I, I've been worried about you all night long. Why? Were you afraid you were running out of fall guys? What? The party's over, sweetheart. I went down to the Harmony, like you said. I ran into that big ape, as you knew I would. I didn't get killed, but that's not your fault. Oh, Timothy. Don't call me Timothy. You call me sweetheart, she said, sounding very young. Believe me, sweetheart, I didn't mean it tenderly. I don't even know what to call you. You're certainly not Mrs. Huntington. I know, Timothy. Anything you want to say, I deserve it. She was crying. It came over the wire softly, saying more than a thousand words. There was the sound of a girl at the end of a rope, a beautiful girl from a nice little town who was somehow deep in trouble in the ugly city where all the slickers live. I couldn't think of anything to do about it. I'm sending back your fifty dollars, I told her. Buy a ticket with it. Get on a train and go home. Oh, Timothy, I'm in trouble. I need help. Go back home, I repeated. I can't. Not now. I need help. She spoke like that, slowly, jerkily. Get on a train, I insisted. Get out of town. Whatever you're mixed up in, drop it and run before you get knocked down. I can't. She sobbed the words. Oh, I want to, but I can't. Won't you please help me, Timothy? Please. Goodbye, I said as softly as I could. Good luck and no hard feelings. Timothy! I held the receiver at arm's length and looked at the little holes in the ear cup. I could still hear her voice crackling out of those little holes. Crackling, but plaintive. And I remembered what she looked like and how she probably looked now. I should have hung the damn thing up. The voice meant nothing but trouble. More than fifty dollars could ever buy. I started the receiver back toward its cradle. I heard the small sounds again. Please, Timothy. Then I spoke into the mouthpiece. Where are you? I asked. It came at me in a rush. 321 West 44th. The apartment's in the name of Barnes. She's my roommate. Oh, oh, Timothy. Now look, I'm not promising anything, I growled. I'm no Boy Scout. Yes, you are, she said. Hurry, Timothy. I love that name, Timothy. It sounds so protective. Hurry. She sounded better. This time I did hang up, but of course it was too late. I shrugged and wondered what was wrong with me while I dialed the ocean brokerage number and asked for Mr. Forbes. His secretary sounded like a nice old lady. 
She said her boss would be able to see me at twelve noon. Noon? Yes, she said. Noon. I shrugged again and said I'd be there, silently wishing that I'd taken time this morning for some breakfast. Then I was off to Evelyn's, if that was her first name. Jezebel envelope in my pocket and many doubts in my mind. It was ten o'clock. 321 West 44th Street's one of those apartment hotels just off 8th Avenue that are made to order for show people. Actors, actresses, chorus girls. Since they provide a central location in the city, the convenience of hotel service, the privacy of an apartment, and are not especially expensive. They are also made to order for trouble, though no one blames show people for that. It's a strange fact, though, that the New York police have found over the years that the city's most bizarre murders, orgiastic parties, and daring robberies have occurred in apartment hotels as against apartments, hotels, homes, or tenements. They are also made to order for girls who are in a special kind of show business. They say these girls never leave the premises, but always have the rent when it's due. That's what they say, but I don't know for sure. But the desk clerk did. He knew about it. That is, he had heard it on good authority. Probably even seen one once for all the good it did him. I asked him for the number of the barn's apartment, and for some reason, that was funny, because he giggled. Then he lifted an arm very gracefully and studied a tiny watch that was strapped to his dainty wrist. At this hour? He asked archly, and his thin lips drew back in a haughty smile. Just tell me the apartment, I said. That made his eyes close and brought a droop to the wide, padded shoulders. He was resigned to the fact that I really wanted the number of the apartment. Four C, he told me, utterly fatigued. Then he smiled again, prettily. I told him to keep his powder dry and got into the elevator, which was run by a man. Oops. He was wearing trousers and had a shirt and tie on, and his hair was cut like a man's. Those things fooled me. The look I got from him didn't. We got to the fourth floor without the cable slipping. I mentioned these things, the place, the clerk, the elevator operator, to help explain why it felt so good a moment later to see an honest-to-God woman, a clear-cut member of the opposite sex, open the door to apartment 4C. Clear-cut is a good description of Evelyn as she stood there in the doorway, sunlight streaming in behind her in a now-you-see-it-now-you-don't negligee made of some green cloud-like stuff. My long-legged huntress, the blonde who baited her traps with me, and I thought she looked just fine. She was cool this morning, the way she had been at first glance yesterday. But now, maybe it was the green thing. She was cool even at a second glance. I stepped into her den, dropped my hat on a chair, and spread out tentatively on one of those curved two-seater couches. We still hadn't spoken a word. Now she picked up my hat, sat down on the chair, and put my hat in her lap and raised her head as though she were going to speak. But then she held her head still and sat there watching me with a funny little smile on her face. Hello, Timothy, she said. I gazed across the room at her, puzzled. Hello, she said again. So, hello, I said warily. I guess I sounded sort of silly on the phone, she said. I looked at her. Not necessarily, I told her evenly. But I have an idea you're going to act silly now. What do you mean? I mean that I think you've decided not to tell me about this shakedown you're mixed in or about the job I was supposed to be on last night. She avoided my gaze. I'm not mixed in anything, she said. I stood up then. I even smiled down at her. I'll take my hat, I said. Fifteen minutes ago, you were in a jam. Now you're playing games again. 
dangerous games. My hat. She sat there without moving, my hat in her lap and her eyes full on my face worriedly. No, she said. Yes. What do you think this is, a rehearsal for the senior play? How many corny routines are you going to try out on me anyway? I stood above her. I fell for your line yesterday. Apparently, I fell for it again this morning. Now, all I want is out. No more goddamn theatrics. You may have all the equipment, I growled at her, but your technique is childish. I'm a big boy. Give me my hat. She slipped to her feet, clutching the hat against her flat stomach. Don't go, she said. Give me time to think. You're all out of time, I said, and reached for my hat. But she darted her arms behind her back the way a kid does. But she wasn't a kid. This was a woman. A well-grown woman. I reached around her, not playfully. She held her arms outstretched behind her and turned her face up into mine. I reached further, and that was when she stood on tiptoe, dropped the hat to the rug, and brought her arms up around my neck. They were slim arms and very warm through the sheer green material that covered them, and they were arms that were strong enough to hold a man. I am in trouble, she whispered into my ear. I am in trouble. There was nothing childish about the way she said that. I kissed her, and she held my head in both of her hands, and we rocked back and forth gently on the soles of our feet. That helps, she murmured. Then, oh, that, that helps. Oh, Timothy, where have you been? When I held her away from me and looked at her, her eyes were still closed and there was moisture beneath the lids. Tell me about it, I said. What kind of a jam are you in? She shook her head. It's terrible. It isn't fair to tell you. Fair? To you. You were right about last night. I used you as a decoy. I'm not married to Walter Huntington. I don't even know him. My name isn't even Evelyn. It's Sally. I had to laugh. It was a good act, I told her. His drinking, the brassiere in his pocket. I don't think I believed all of it, but I wanted to. She lowered her head. I know you did. I was hoping you wouldn't, so that I could tell you the truth right then and there. Who's behind this thing? Who sent you to my office? Her eyes avoided mine. Don't ask me about him, please. Who, Sally? She was biting her lip and shaking her head from side to side. Someone, she said lamely. A man. He says he knows about you. He told me to be careful. Tell me who he is. She turned from me and sat down on the couch. I'm... well, I'm afraid he... Oh, I know it sounds silly, but I'm in a position where I more or less have to do as he says, at least for the time being. Why? Who is this guy? His name is Castell. Her voice as she spoke the name was subdued. Castell, I echoed softly. How in the name of God did you get mixed up with a louse like Rocky Castell? She smiled wryly. I guess you do know him, then. Her smooth shoulders hunched forward. I don't really know myself how I got mixed up with him, she said. Oh, I know how it happened, but it's all such a nightmare. Why did Castell send you to me? I asked her. What business has he got with the vice president of Oceanic Brokerage? She spread her hands in a helpless gesture. I don't know anything about it, Timothy. Walter Huntington seems to be important to him. All I was supposed to do is what I did, talk to you and send you to that bar. Like Jameson? I asked quietly. Sally covered her face. That's why I couldn't sleep last night, thinking about Jameson, thinking that the same thing was going to happen to you and wishing I were dead. 
Apparently, I told her, Jameson and I only had nuisance value to Castell. We were supposed to bother somebody as far as I can make out. It seemed to me that Castell had enough guys on his own payroll who know all there is to know about annoying people. I know what you mean, she said. I've met them. What's Castell got on you, Sally? Money? She stood up, turned her face into my shoulder, and buried it there. Her voice came to me half-muscled against the cloth of my jacket. If it were only money, she said. It's something worse, Timothy. Something shameful. It's pictures, I said then. Her head snapped back. How did you know that? With Rocky Castell, I said. It's two things. Money or pictures. I scowled at her. How did he ever get you to pose for things like that? She began to cry again, silently. But I, I didn't... I didn't pose for them. It was... I don't know how it happened. Want to tell me about it? I asked as softly as I could. She nodded and brushed at her eyes and took me by the hand of the couch. We sat down, close together. I came to New York, Sally began, from Montpelier. That's a city, not a city like New York. It's in Vermont. She took a breath. I won a contest. It was statewide. A talent search, they called it. I sang a song, and I won. You wouldn't have to sing, I told her. But I can sing, Sally said. Anyhow... We didn't display our talents in bathing suits, if that's what you mean. Go on with your story, I grinned. At least I had snapped her out of her tears. So I came to New York looking for a job. Did you register with an agency? She shook her head. No, I just began walking around from place to place asking if they needed a girl singer. And what did they tell you? They wanted to see my legs. One man asked me if I had to wear falsies. Did anybody ask you to sing? Now, she smiled. No, she said ruefully. You should have gone to an agency first. Let some little guy as tough as the bookers do your selling for you. You got the kind of treatment you asked for. I guess I did. But about the sixth place I tried was down in Greenwich Village. It looked very nice inside, all chrome and those glass bricks that light up. I was very impressed with it. It's called the Cabin Club, isn't it? Yes, but... And Rocky Castell was there when you went in to audition. Yes. And he hired you. Or he was there when you were hired, right? Sally nodded in surprise. All right, I told her. Then what happened? Well, I sang for a week. I was sort of a hit, in a mild way. Monday nights the club was closed. Then Castell invited me to a party. He said it was to be a private party at the club on Monday. He said it was sort of a celebration for my first week's success. And you told yourself that New York was easier to get by in than Montpelier, Vermont. Sally bit her lip. That's what I thought. I went to the private party in a brand new dress. I was all excited. Who wouldn't be? Who wouldn't? I agreed. What happened? Well, I hadn't had many drinks before that night. A few on Saturday nights up in Montpelier. But nothing in a big way, do you know? I nodded that I knew. But that night I couldn't refuse. How can you refuse to drink at your own party? You can't, providing it's really your party, I said. Yes, but that wasn't really my party. Not the way I expected it would be. How many drinks did you have? She shook her head. Not so many. Maybe five, maybe six. That's the point, Timothy. I really don't remember. You passed out. Yes, she said. 
But I wasn't sick. I just got very dizzy all of a sudden, and my body felt very warm. Then my eyes seemed to get heavy as lead. It was very embarrassing. I don't even remember being taken away from the table. How many people were there at the party? About ten. Six men and four girls, myself and three others. Did they pass out? I don't know. You see, I don't know very much about that evening at all. And when you did wake up, where were you? It was the afternoon of the next day, Tuesday, and I was here in the apartment in bed. My roommate had gone to work, but she left a note to call her. I called her, and she said she was waked at five in the morning by the desk clerk. A taxi driver was in the lobby, and I was in his cab unconscious. The driver had been told to drive me here by two men in the village. The men told the driver I had been drinking more than was good for me. My roommate, Jenny Barnes, and the clerk helped me up here, and Jeanie got me to bed. I lit two cigarettes and handed her one. Did you go back to work at the cabin club that night? I felt very sick all day, very restless. I couldn't seem to sit still in one place for more than a minute, but I went down to work. And you talked to Rocky. I tried to avoid him. I had no idea what had happened at the party. I felt ashamed of myself for passing out. But when my last number was finished, he came back and knocked at my dressing room door. He had some news for you, I suggested. Sally nodded her head slowly. He had news for me, she said. He said I was quite the life of the party. I asked him what he meant. I said I was sorry for acting like such a little girl. He said no, that I'd acted like quite a big girl. I didn't know what he was talking about. Then he took a picture out of his wallet. It was a shot of me singing at the microphone, the same one I'd just finished singing at out front, with one difference. Sally looked away from me, and I could see that the memory of the picture was making her choke up. With one difference, she said again, slowly. Oh, Timothy, I was naked, completely naked, and the way the picture was taken, it looked as though there were a lot of people watching me. But there weren't a lot. It was the same bunch that had been at the party. But there I was, at the mic, and smiling, kind of dopey-like, not the way I really smile. And there was a big spotlight on me. Sally dropped her head to my chest. And I didn't have any clothes on. It was horrible. I sighed and stroked the back of her neck the way you do with a kid or a beautiful little girl from Montpelier who's been taken by a vicious racket. You were doped, baby. Weren't your arms sore the next day, full of tiny holes, needle holes? Not my arms. The soles of my feet. How did they do it, Timothy? Well, I explained in a low voice. First, they knocked you out with the drinks. Nothing violent. Nothing to get you sick. Then they let you sleep for a few hours. Or maybe they shot some digitales into your veins. That would revive you, I said. Or at least shock you awake. But from then on, they kept you high on opium. High as the big blue skies. You were in dreamland, Sally. Your mind was. But you could still walk around and respond to orders. Then they told you it was time to sing for the crowd, and you sang. To you, then, you never sang as well. And the fact that you didn't have a stitch on seemed perfectly normal. That was when the pictures were taken. The flashlights popped, but the chances are you never noticed them. Not that it would have made any difference, because all you wanted to do was sing for the people. The fact that there wasn't any music, though they might have played a record, didn't make any difference either. You just stood up and sang. Don't, Timothy. Don't tell me any more about it. I won't, baby. In fact, we'll both forget it ever happened. And pretty soon I'll get those pictures back and that'll be the end of it. You will? Her face was beaming with joy. You really will? Oh, Timothy! 
I'll get them, I told her. But first tell me what Castell wanted you to do about them. He said they were his insurance. Insurance? Yes, those pictures were a guarantee that if he ever had any special favors to ask, I'd be glad to oblige. Favors? Not that kind, Timothy. At least not then. He's been hinting about that lately, but not in connection with the pictures. He says he wants me to be his girl. If it ever came to that, I wouldn't care what he did with the pictures. What did he say he was going to do with the pictures if you didn't do what he asked you to? He said he'd send them to my folks and to the people I know in Montpelier. He said he'd attach a note about their little girl making good as a singing star in New York. It was horrible. Just thinking about it was unbearable. My mother and my father, they'd die of it, Timothy. A thing like that would kill them both. He's a nice boy, that Castell, I said half to myself. We met once. We'll meet again. That's how I came to see you with that story about Walter Huntington. A few weeks ago, it was a private detective named Jameson. You apparently know about that, too. Yes, I said. I know about that, too. But don't you worry about it any more. You were framed as much as he was. Or I was. But you have no idea what Castell wants from Huntington? She shook her head. Cross my heart, Timothy. She actually made a cross over her heart, and I smiled at her. Well, I said, getting up again, I'll be finding out some answers very soon. I'm on my way down to Oceanic right now. Sally laid a hand on my arm. Don't, she said. I got you into this terrible thing. Please, now that you know it's bad, get away from it. I looked at her. Bad? Hell, I think you steered me into my first job in weeks. It might even be a big one. That reminds me, here's your retainer, ma'am. Since it's Castell's money, I added, handing her the envelope. It's not only dirty, but probably unlucky. I don't know what to tell you to do with it except hop a train to Montpelier. She was standing next to me once more in that green transparent cloud. Is that what you want me to do? She asked, that mischievous look back in her eyes. It's what you ought to do, I told her. What I want you to do doesn't mean anything at all. It doesn't? It shouldn't. It shouldn't? This is silly, I said and held her the way I'd held her after the hat trick a while before. I kissed her, and it was good. Better than good. I said I would be seeing her. Do you really have to leave? I nodded. Yes, yeah, sweetheart. Business is business. And besides, I added, looking at my watch, it's awfully early. I didn't know why I felt self-conscious about that precious little desk clerk. Sally just looked at me for a moment, and, and then she came across the room, picked up my hat, put it on my head, and kissed me again. "'There's your old hat,' she said. I left her apartment and ducked into the subway for Wall Street, thinking about many things. But for every nice idea I had about the wonderful blonde from Montpelier, I had a savage one about Rocky Castell, the guy with all the foul ideas. And apparently he had some ideas about Walter Huntington. There's an excuse for a kid fresh off the train from White River Junction but the vice president of Oceanic Brokerage should know better than to involve him with someone like Castell. And if he knew better, then what was the game? How did the warehouse full of canceled policies figure? And the Harmony Bar? Hell's bells. Rocky Castell owned a small army of gunmen who could have looked the Harmony in the warehouse over from wall to wall. Why make shills out of Jameson and me? Then I had it. At least, that part of it. My playmate up in Bellevue. The big guy with the big ache in his head. The bull. 
the bull would know any of Castell's boys. They all went to the same dancing class together. The bull wouldn't know me, or there was a good chance he wouldn't. So whatever it was Castell had in mind, he was playing close to his chest. But maybe if I sniffed around it long enough, we'd get everybody out in the open. And then I could go to work on getting Sally's pictures back. They played, and on this I'd lay odds, a bigger part in this caper than just a lever to use the girl as a front to hire detectives. All out for Wall Street. Watch your wallet. End of chapter 5《Chapter Six of the Perfect Frame by William Ard. The Sliverbox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Chapter Six. New York is a tight little village of nine million souls and twice that many contradictions. Wall Street, that quaint, torturous little path twisting like a berserk artery through this planet's financial heart, has more than its share of paradoxes. You can, for instance, Throw a baseball from the steps of the bank in New York and be sure of hitting some penniless derelict on the South Street gutter. Or you can bump into a man coming out of the subway, as I just did, and he may look harassed because the company won't raise his salary to $60, even though they trust him with $3 million of their assets. And while a citizen in Harlem gets 30 days when they catch him peddling a 10-cent policy slip, on Wall Street the cop on the beat touches his cap to the lucky guy who just guessed the million-dollar number on the big tote board they call the stock exchange. And Wall Street is where you enter the lobby of a mammoth granite skyscraper, zoom 43 floors in an all-electric elevator, step into a leisurely, deep-carpeted reception room, and pass through many hands before you enter an office three times the size of your own. But this isn't the real one. This is only the secretary's hangout. The nice old lady who made the appointment for you. But now a large oak door swings open, and there he stands. The big boss, Mr. Franklin Alonzo Forbes, president and proprietor of Oceanic Brokerage. And what do you do in the presence of this tycoon? Search me. But one thing you don't do, no matter how strong the urge, you don't laugh at the timid, befuddled, gray-haired little man who stands shy and dwarfed in the middle of his office, waiting for you to make the first move. You wonder, as you go forward cautiously, if this is the third bookkeeper or the assistant stamp licker who wandered out of the mailroom. It can't be Franklin Forbes. I heard the big door shush behind me electrically, and I came to a stop a few feet from him. Mr. Forbes? I asked. He blinked his large round eyes at me and nodded politely. I'm Dane, sir. Timothy Dane. I'm Forbes, he said. Franklin Forbes. Yes, sir. I held my hand out toward him and he leaned away. "'How do you do?' he said in a thin, quavering voice. "'I never shake hands. Easiest way to spread germs there is.' The voice trailed off, and he looked at me absently. "'What was your name?' "'Timothy Dane,' he nodded. "'I knew your father,' Mr. Forbes said. "'You favor him?' I cocked my head in surprise, and my puzzled eyes followed him as he turned and walked to the great desk at the other end of the room. "'Your father was a fine man, Mr.' Uh, "'Dane, did you know my father in Chicago?' "'Chicago?' he asked, almost disappearing from view in a broad-backed chair. "'I don't think I've ever been in Chicago,' he told me. "'You've got me confused with someone, Mr. Forbes. I doubt if you knew my father. He stuck pretty close to Chicago.' "'Are you from there?' "'I was born there,' I said. "'My father died when I was very young. I've been in New York most of the time since then.' "'Good for you,' he said. 
This is the uh, city of opportunity, isn't it? Fortune to be made on every street corner, eh? He smiled. Though it seems hardly worth it, doesn't it? Terrible taxes, abominable situation, don't you agree? It was my turn to smile. Never really noticed taxes, sir. Don't notice them? He said with the nearest thing to life that his voice had held yet. Well, I must say, Mr. Dane, sir, like the dog, Great Dane. Can't stand dogs, Mr. Dane, frightened to death of the vicious things. Man's worst enemy. Well, thanks for dropping by, young man. Give my best to your dear father. Mr. Forbes, I said in a different voice, I'm here about that business at the warehouse last night. I think Mr. Robinson mentioned it to you. He blinked at me again. Mr. Robinson. Warehouse? What warehouse? The Oceanic Warehouse on 21st Street, Mr. Forbes. Do we have a warehouse there? Whatever for? Aye. You keep your clients' old policies there, sir. Cancelled policies. Why do you want to buy cancelled policies, Mr. Uh, Dane? I don't want to buy them. Can't say as I blame you for that, he told me slyly. We were interrupted by his secretary's soft voice, but she wasn't in the room. Her voice seemed to come from all four walls at once, and I jumped. Mr. Dane is a private investigator, said the voice. He's here about something suspicious that is supposed to have happened in our warehouse last evening. I read you Mr. Robinson's memo about it this morning. Mr. Forbes looked down at his desk. I don't remember it, Mary, he seemed to be saying to the blotter. I'll have Mr. Robinson come in, then, said Mary. And that was that. I looked around me and saw nothing on the wall but paintings of flowers and apples and pears. The ceiling was solidly plastered, and the rug ran wall to wall. Wherever the speaker was hidden, it was a good one, clear as a bell. Mr. Forbes had been watching me look for it, and now he held a bronze paperweight in his hand. Extending below it was a wire that continued on into the desk. My microphone, he explained. The speaker is here in all those paintings, camouflaged. Very clever, I said. "'wondering why all the hocus-pocus. "'Walter's idea,' said Mr. Forbes, "'and there was a great difference in the timbre of his voice as he spoke. "'He was proud, and then he looked at me sharply. "'Oh,' he cried, "'now I remember about the warehouse, of course, "'but you should be seeing Walter about it. "'Walter is in charge of everything like that.' "'The voice from the paintings again. "'Mr. Robinson,' it said, "'and the door opened to admit the man I had worked with in Chicago.' I stood up to face him, noticing that his thinning, colorless hair had grown no thicker, and that he was wearing steel-rimmed spectacles now. The glasses blended right into Jocko's thin, high-cheeked, expressionless face, as if he'd always owned them. He was like that with everything. A new suit, a new tie, even a new mustache. Once Jocko had them on, you would swear he'd been with them for years. He would always look the same. A short, wiry, quick-moving character who'd started on his first ulcer when he was eighteen, and been nursing it along for another eighteen I liked him very much in Chicago. "'Hello, Jocko,' I said, amid outstretched. He strode toward me brusquely, touched his dry palm to mine for a brief second, and said, "'Hello, Dane,' in that clipped, monotonous voice. However, he was no more effervescent with his boss, so I didn't take the brush off to heart. Besides, I knew from our conversation last night that Jocko had something on his mind, something that I had put my foot into. "'Dane called me last night,' he said to Mr. Forbes, "'all business at once.' He'd like to investigate privately some activity down at our warehouse. "'What does Walter say?' asked the boss. Jocko glanced at me swiftly, and I shook my head. "'Mr. Huntington doesn't know anything about Mr. Dane, not as yet.' 
That's very irregular, Jocko, Mr. Forbes told him. You know that Walter should be informed of everything immediately. You know that, even before I'm informed. You know that. Jocko had taken the ball, so I decided to see where he'd run with it. But Jocko was passing. Just as you say, Mr. Forbes, but perhaps Mr. Dane has something to tell you about the matter. I know very little about it myself. I have no objection to talking to Mr. Huntington about the warehouse, I said to them both. In fact, I don't see how it can be avoided. Dane thinks his investigation may involve Mr. Huntington, Jocko put in. I didn't say that. Involve Walter, Forbes seemed upset. In what way? I have no idea, Mr. Forbes, I said. That's why I'm suggesting a look-see. All I know is that something peculiar is going on at that warehouse. Something peculiar in Walter's department? Mr. Forbes stood up from his desk, not timidly. That's ridiculous, young man. Investigate Walter. I won't hear of such a thing. He wagged a bony forefinger at me. Walter Huntington is as close to me as a son. My goodness, investigate Walter. Why, I brought Walter to Oceanic myself. Took him straight from college. Made him my trusted assistant. Walter has been like a son to me for almost twenty-five years. The old man was so wrought up that he even made so bold as to come out from the protection of that great fortress of a desk. He glared up at me like an outraged sparrow. I won't hear of such a thing, he piped. Okay, Mr. Forbes, I said, holding my hand in the air. Okay, I'll just poke around by myself, on a speculation basis. If I come across any dirty wash, I'll hang it out, and maybe you'll want to buy. Or I can bring it down to the police and trade it in for a little goodwill. The steam went out of him. The police, Mr. Forbes murmured. My heavens, Jocko whirled on me. That'll be enough of that, Dane. You don't try any of that strong-on extortion while I'm around. He sounded just like the old Jocko, but I didn't like it turned on me. What kind of extortion should I try while you're around, Jocko? I got all kinds outside in my carpet bag. Being a Weisenhammer is going to get you out of here on your backside, Dane. I laughed at him. You got the wrong script this time, Jocko. I'm the one who did all the throwing out in shy. That was there. This is here. Yes, Jocko. I explained slowly. This is here. This is New York, pal. My town. I moved toward him. Mr. Forbes was standing in the center of his office, his head going back and forth like a man at a tennis match. Now, now, he said. W what is this all about? I'm sorry, Mr. Forbes, Jocko said. I just happened to resent Dane's tactics. Whatever he thinks may be happening at our warehouse, I don't care to say whether he may be right or wrong, but whatever he thinks is the trouble, it certainly has nothing to do with the police. I should hope not, said the Oceanic President. But regarding what you mentioned, Mr. Dane, I certainly don't think it's fair that you should extend yourself on behalf of my company for the sake of, uh, what did you call it, speculation. He cleared his throat. Since you are a professional investigator, I doubt if you would be spending your very valuable time on an affair unless you thought it important. Am I right? Naturally. I said. He smiled good-naturedly. Therefore, Mr. Dane, Oceanic is quite anxious to retain your services in this matter. We will be your client on one condition. Yes? That Walter be spared the terrible humiliation, said Mr. Forbes. My goodness, I certainly don't want Walter to think that I distrust him after all these long and wonderful years. That would be a terrible thing, Mr. Dane. Well, I began, but he stopped me. That's the condition, sir, and you may take it or leave it. 
Heaven knows I try to spend my life away from every unpleasantness, but if you do not accept my offer, then I'm afraid I'll be forced to take steps to forbid you from investigating my warehouse or my associates. Do you understand me, young man? If Forbes, the original timid soul, was a contradiction of what the head of a huge firm was supposed to be, then he was also a contradiction of himself when it involved the fair-haired Walter Huntington. Damon and Pythias. I understand, sir, I said. I'll investigate without Mr. Huntington getting wind of it, if that's what you want. That's what I insist on, and when you finish, you'll find that my trust in Walter is well placed. Why, the old man smiled, Walter would give his life for Oceanic, and I dare say that's more than can be said for anyone else who works here, including myself, Mr. Dane, including myself. Your reports, said Jocko, will be confidential, Dane, confidential and verbal. No need to write anything down, is there, Mr. Forbes? Oh, my no. You'll report to me on everything, Mr. Dane. I took a good long look at Jocko, remembering rule number one at Pioneer. Three copies of every investigation. One for the client, one for the boss, and one for the file. As you say, Jocko. Then that'll be all, Jocko said. You can go now. There's one more formality, I said. The loot. Jocko turned to his employer. Our employer. Dane wants a retainer, Mr. Forbes, he said, and I thought it sounded unpleasant. Mary will give you a check, Mr. Dane, I reminded him again. He smiled at me slightly. I just wanted to hear you say it, young man. Great Dane, didn't you say? I try, Mr. Forbes. He walked to me and extended his hand. Goodbye, Mr. Dane. I'm sorry that I can't wish you any luck. I really do think you're wasting your valuable time. His old hand felt firm in my own. In a way, I told him, I hope you're right. Loyal assistants are hard to find. And harder to lose, he said confidently. I turned from both of them and headed for the door. It swung out toward me before I reached it, and when I walked into Mary's room, she smiled up at me and pressed a red button on her desk. The door closed. On her desk, she had an open checkbook, and she had already filled in my name. Will 1,000 serve as a retainer? she asked. I nodded. She finished writing and handed me the check. Her name was signed at the bottom. I thanked her. She lifted one of the earphones and said, What? I thanked her again. These things, Mary said, are certainly silly. But Walter thought of them, I reminded her, so they must be wonderful. Her face was noncommittal as I left the office. Down the hall from Mr. Forbes, I remembered passing an open door labeled Walter Huntington, and I walked back that way casually. It was only a swift glance, but enough to show me a medium-sized, distinguished-looking man, seated behind a desk. I had the flash impression of neatness and good grooming, and the voice that he dictated to his secretary in went smoothly and capably. He didn't raise his eyes as I passed, but kept them on the girl with the stenopad. All I saw of her was the back of her head, long black hair that hung to her shoulders in defiance of the fashion, a thin waist and long, slim legs. She gave the impression from the rear of being a beautiful girl and from the way she held Huntington's attention, I was sure of it. I moved on thoughtfully to the elevator, still wondering where this shill game was going to lead. At least I told myself I was moving in the right direction. The fifty I had returned to Evelyn Huntington had come back a thousand. That's progress, my boy, I said to myself, and decided to take a cab back to my office. End of chapter 6 Chapter 7 of The Perfect Frame by William Ard. 
This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Chapter 7 The driver, a squat man with a day-old beard, coaxed his hack down Wall Street somehow and had to sneak onto Broadway even though we had the light. We started north toward Times Square. For five whole blocks, I counted them, we moved at the alarming speed of twenty miles per hour, but then we hit the City Hall snarl and had to thread perilously across the eastbound Brooklyn Bridge traffic. Canal Street and then Broom kept us in a nerve-edging second gear, but he found rolling room for another five blocks until the long jam started below 14th. From there to 44th, we really crawled, and I found out how to solve New York's traffic problem. Send everything on wheels via New Jersey and fly what's left. Or, damn it, let the city's traffic engineers pay my cab fares. A buck and a quarter to go less than three miles. I carried the thousand-dollar check into the bank in my building and watched the lady write it into my book. That brought my balance to $1,003.75, plus the 28 cents that jingled in my pocket. I moved over to another window and took 300 bucks back. I thanked everybody, went from the bank to the liquor store next door, decided on a full quart of Seagram's, and got on board the elevator. I had a new outlook on life, and as I turned the special lock on my door, I whistled my hometown as a one-horse town. I got a foot inside the doorway and kept on whistling, but I flatted the tune badly. I had a visitor. He was in my swivel, with his elbows on my desk and his broad, mean face cupped in the palms of his hands. His real sharp, bright green hat was set flat on his head, and the brim was turned up all around, just the way it came out of the Adams box. I looked at him and stopped whistling. He looked at me and his tongue moved around inside his cheek as though it were digging things out of his teeth. Something to the left caught my eye. I had two visitors. He was not as wide through the shoulders as his friend at the desk, but his hair was just as overgrown on the sides, and it had started to curl black and oily over the collar of his covert cloth topcoat. The hat, tilted back on his head, was violet blue, the latest thing. He was a handsome Italian, except that he didn't look too clean and his mouth was too sardonic. He didn't look up at me, but concentrated on the long, tapering fingernails he was manicuring. Neither of the two spoke to me. Stay loose, the voice just above a whisper turned me around to the right. I had three visitors. The third was half the size of the others, but he had the wide-brimmed hat and white-gray, and he was a lot more active. He got up from the client's chair and moved toward me in a floating motion, a queer, languid smile on his chiseled face. It didn't fit at all with his quick, nervous-looking features. The first thing he did was lift the quart from under my arm and set it on the desk. Then his slender hands were busy on my body, touching, patting, feeling. Where is it? His voice sounded empty and deadly. The lazy, out-of-the-world sound of a snowbird. This little greaser was coked to the eyebrows. Where you think? He purred at me. I hocked it, I said, and that was true. My old forty-five was resting in an oiled rag in Uncle Sam Panansky's safe a block away on 8th Avenue. The one behind the desk laughed. The sound exploded unpleasantly in the small room. "'A lush racket our friend has,' he told everybody. "'He's got to hawk his heat.' He sucked in air noisily through his mouth, and I took another look at him. Sure enough, his nose was flat against his face, a fighter's nose, with the bone removed, and that explained the extra wide shoulders. Now all I had to have explained was how they had opened the double lock and what the hell did they want with me. From the looks of them, they belonged to Rocky Castell. I turned to the hophead. "'How's Castell?' I asked. "'Stotelizice,' he drawled at me in that unique-sounding New York Italian. "'Shut it tight, you fink!' He leered up into my face crazily. 
It's those needles, I told him. You only think you're ten feet tall. He swung, and it was funny because it came at me in slow motion. I picked the punch off half a foot from my face and pushed him gently to the floor with my right hand. Then it wasn't so funny. I thought that the guy coming at me from behind was right-handed, so I had my right shoulder raised and was turned toward the left. That put my head right under it. I heard the air swish, and then I was down on the floor on my hands and knees. And my nose was only a few inches from the terrible blazing eyes of the hophead. He relieved himself some by spitting at me crazily. Then with a weird half-strangling sound, he scrambled to his feet and began to brush hysterically at his yellow camel's hair coat. That's the way it goes with these fastidious dressers on the west side. I shook the cobwebs out of my head, and with a watchful eye on the quick-moving pug who'd sapped me, I got back up. We gazed at each other, level-eyed, and from the slight sway of his head I knew he was balanced on the balls of his feet, ready for another left-handed try at my head. Hurt? he asked in an amiable growl. Why? He shrugged and closed his eyes. <laughs> I don't know. We come here to work you over, so I guess it don't matter none if it hurts or it don't. He sucked in air, and there was a thin whistling sound in his nostrils. Shut up, Wemo, the little ace snapped all the purr gone from him since his trip to the floor. He moved over till he was at my shoulder, and then jammed what he thought was hard on my instep. A friend sent us, he told me. He got two things for you not to do. Number one, you punk, stay away from the broad. Understand, creep? He dug his heel into my instep again. Don't go near the blonde, understand? Number two, keep your nose away from... His doped mind struggled for a name. Walter Huntington, said the handsome one quietly from his seat against the wall. Shut up! The hoppy whirled on him. And handsome smiled to himself and went back to his fingernails. Nobody talks, screamed the tiny one. Me, I talk! He jabbed at his chest with a thumb. Everybody else, stote le gige. Understand? There was a thin stream of spittle spilling onto his chin as his reddish, sick eyes danced over my face. It was really wound up, this crazy one, and the more he screamed, the tighter he was getting. Now, so suddenly that I almost missed it, he flicked the wrist of his right arm, and when I glanced down, he was holding the long-bladed, evil-looking shiv in his delicate, pale fingers. Grinning, he placed the sharp steel point against my groin and leaned toward me. Oh, for Christ's sake, Vito, the pug said warily. What the hell? You think I'm scared, Wemo? The hophead's voice was soft once more. Soft and serious. It was a spot. If I made a bad move, it would send him off again. But he was pressing the shiv, and if I didn't move... Go ahead, Weem, he said. Tell me I'm scared to open him. Go on, say it. You're not scared, kid, said Wemo without enthusiasm. But what the hell? You will be, said the one in the corner. When you lose that snow and rocky his... The blade didn't press so tight. Yeah, Wemo said. Rocky only wants we should run this bastard down. If he would have said cut him if he wanted, we should. The hophead's eyes went flat, and there was a click. Then the blade was out of sight in his sleeve again. I swung at him, and my shoulder was into it. It was a gamble, the idea being to chill the maniac and have him fall into the other one, knocking him off balance. It worked, but not for as long as I needed. The big guy tossed his unconscious friend to the carpet and moved in on me his body weaving with the blackjack cocked in his large left fist. I fainted with my own right shoulder, and he ducked. My left hand caught him below the cheekbone, full the way it should. He poked the left into my face, but he was hurt. And a second later, he was hurt more when I buried the knuckles and wrist of my right hand into his solar plexus. But there's more to it than hurting somebody. If he'd only gone down, that would have given me a chance with Handsome. 
but he had to come up behind me, measuring me, I guess, for his own sapper. Either way, I was washed up in this brawl, but it was my tough luck that Handsome was an expert. None of this messy skull-wrapping, no taking chances on killing somebody when you're hired for something else. All it took was one crack, hard on the collarbone close to the neck. The pain was classic, down my whole right side and up into my head at the same time. I was paralyzed with it, and my right leg crumpled under me. But not before the pug I'd slammed exploded a brand new pain with a right fist against the bridge of my nose. And there I lay, unable to move, completely conscious, and every nerve in my body begging for death. It hurt so bad I couldn't even stop biting through my lower lip long enough to scream. It's a fabulous thing, that tendon in the collarbone. Hanson was speaking to me from a great distance. We'd stay and play with you, sweetheart, but we got to shove. Don't want the little man here to wake up and find you so easy to take. His quiet voice echoed all around me. I watched Big Wemo lift little Vito like a mail sack. What you got was just the trial offer, Handsome said. Stay away from that blonde queen or we'll be back with the real treatment. And stay out of Walter Huntington's life. I was going to be sick now and I was gagging on the effort to hold it back. One thing more. I closed my eyes tight. Make it a point to stay out of Vito's way. He's a bad actor. I heard his foot scruff the rug and opened my eyes just in time to watch him lift his right shoe and drive the tip of its pointed sole into the side of my head. So long, soldier, I think is what he said. Then the three of them were gone and I had the pain and the sickness all to myself. When I opened my eyes again, the sun was throwing long shadows across the rug. The shadow I noticed first was the one that made by the quart still standing on the desk. Despite the terrific spike through the middle of my skull, the idea of going to work on that bottle seemed like a good one. So I crawled over my desk, climbed into my swivel, and got the wrapping off. I sat there till it got dark, nursing the whiskey and licking my wounds. It was only twenty-five hours since a girl had come into this office and called herself Evelyn Huntington. Since then, my life had taken on a certain zest, a richness, a je ne sais quoi. I longed for those times, the day before yesterday when everything was quiet and there weren't so many people eager to meet me, physically. Like hell I did. End of chapter 7 Chapter 8 of The Perfect Frame by William Ard The Slibrivox Recordings in the Public Domain Read by Ben Tucker Chapter 8 New York gets dark and the lights come on and that just seems to make it darker. But from my office window, I can look beyond the explosion of neon on Broadway, and my eyes are not harassed by more than 10,000 nervous little bulbs that fidget their way around the outside of the Times building, dealing out all the news that's fit to be forgotten. The light I see from my window is the soft glow that bathes the tower of the luxurious Winchester. This is my evening star, far, far away, farther than China. In my mind, I can see into the tower suites. I can watch the fabulous Raj of Jonapur, life and death to thirty million souls in his Asiatic kingdom, standing spindly and helpless in his drawers as a team of valets prance around to dress him. In another huge apartment, I imagine some ancient wrinkled billionaire being hand-fed as poached egg unsalted. Or maybe tonight it's farina with five soggy raisins in it. This billionaire can't buy false teeth that fit him and his greatest pleasure is to sit in a soft chair by the window and gum these raisins for hours. He wouldn't even breathe faster if he could look into the less sumptuous but still 
fashionable tower suite directly below his own. There the girl with the world's shapeliest legs, roundest breasts, biggest salary, and most complicated private life is in town from Hollywood for two civilized weeks after the strain of her third technicolor epic this year. Now she's stretched luxuriously in a tub, directing a pale, bug-eyed young bellhop in the scrubbing of her perfect pink back. Two hours from now, the boy will close the door of her suite behind him, dazed with a story none of the other bellhops will believe, and especially the bell captain. Later, though, he'll see her, besabled, come flouncing across the lobby on the arm of her next husband, en route to the stork club, where the party will include two former husbands and the agent who got there first six surprising years ago. At four tomorrow morning, he'll see her flouncing back across the lobby, and he'll be working the elevator, and she'll pinch his cheek and go down the hall to her room with the agent. And somewhere in my own building, a few floors below me, the $1,200-a-week publicity director of that girl's studio is still at his desk and quietly bleeding his ulcer. Not about her. Hell, who'd print a bellhop's confessions and name names. What he's fretting about is their big western star, the six-feet-four of screen bashfulness who grosses the studio three million every time out because he always turns his profile away from the busty heroine when the saga ends and kisses the horse. Tex was due at ten this morning in Grand Central, but he crossed up the six guards assigned to meet him by getting off the 20th century at 125th Street. Now he was probably somewhere in the Harlem jungle, changing his luck, and the last time he had done that, the studio had paid $15,000 to some dark entrepreneur who had taken a home movie of Tex, and he wasn't in bed with a horse. That last time had been my first freelance job in New York. I'd gone up to the tenement just off Lenox at 140th, forked over the 15 G's and taken the film and the pride of Texas out of there without the both of us being sliced in small pieces and floated back downtown on the North River. And I'll never forget the 16-year-old girl who had been Texas co-star during that wild night. She was octoroon, fairer than springtime, and her hair was a soft chestnut color with lights of natural auburn sparkling in it. Maybe she was the most beautiful thing in the world, and maybe I wanted to stay there or come back because she smiled at me. Tonight she was 3,000 miles from here, out in Beverly Hills, disguised as a governess for one of the producers at Texas Studio. He had seen the film. Crazy business. Crazy world. I screwed the top back on the bottle and stood up experimentally. Pain or no pain, it was 7 o'clock and time to get back down to the Harmony Bar and find out what I could have overlooked down there. Obviously I'd missed something in the warehouse that was important to quite a few people, and the list was growing by the hour. Rocky Castell was included to stay. That was for sure, and I didn't need my aching skull to remind me. I was halfway out the door and looked at the thief-proof lock I'd been conned into buying when the phone tinkled on my desk. Jocko Robinson said, "'How are you feeling, Timothy?' "'How was I feeling?' "'I'm not bragging,' I told him. "'What's up?' "'We've had an accident down here,' he said in a voice that was even more iced than usual. "'Walter Huntington just committed suicide.' I looked at the receiver in my hand. He what? Half an hour ago. He jumped out the window, 43 floors, and then a sudden stop. They just swept him off the street. You're taking it well, Jocko. I'm trying to, he said. Mr. Forbes, of course, is pretty hard hit. He asked me to tell you about it. Then start telling. Well, Jocko began, and he didn't seem to know where to start in. Well, it went like this, Timothy. More or less, after you left here, Mr. Forbes got to brooding about what you'd said and what he'd just hired you to do. The more he thought about investigating Walter behind his back, the unhappier he got. His conscience bothered him, you might say. So he told him about it, I put in. Exactly. 
About an hour ago he decided to call Walter in and get it off his chest. He said to him, Walter, I hired a private detective today. And then an amazing thing happened. The shock of Mr. Forbes' life. Walter went all to pieces. He confessed the whole thing. What whole thing? The whole thing about his embezzling, Timothy. For the past year he's been stealing Oceanic's money. Were you there when he spilled it? What would I be doing there? It was personal between them. Mr. Forbes called me here at home and asked me to get in touch with you. He's quite upset, you might say. I think he's been near a complete collapse. How was Huntington stealing? Where does the warehouse come in? I have no idea, said Jocko. I don't think Mr. Forbes knows either. All that Walter said, apparently, was that he was embezzling on his accounts. No details. So what happened? Mr. Forbes listened to him and couldn't believe his senses. He said that he must have had a fainting spell and that Walter carried him over to the couch in his office and revived him. When Mr. Forbes could speak again, he told Walter that what was done was done. He assured him that we all have our weak moments. It's quite a weak moment, I reminded. A year? Perhaps, said Jocko quickly. At any rate, that's how Mr. Forbes felt. Timothy and it's his money. He forgave Walter, and Walter thanked him and promised to repay all that he had stolen. They shook hands. Jocko paused. They shook hands, and Walter went back to his own office. About six o'clock, Mr. Forbes left to go home. He passed Walter's door, but it was closed and the light was on inside. Mr. Forbes didn't go in. At half-past six, Walter Huntington jumped from the window. That's the police report? That's the police report, he repeated. From several hundred witnesses walking down Wall Street to the subway, Huntington landed right in the midst of them. It's surprising that he didn't fall on anyone. Yes, I said. It always is when they jump. Tell me something, Jocko. Just what did Huntington do at Oceanic? He had a very important job. It was his responsibility to see that every policy secured for our clients was letter perfect. All the clauses, the special notations, the legalities. Why? Why not? Where does the warehouse come in? Did he also have charge of canceling the policies? I think you can forget about the warehouse. Jocko said. I can what? That's why Mr. Forbes had me call you. He wants the whole matter hushed up immediately. In fact, I've given the police and the newspapers the been in bad health routine. I don't get it, Jocko. And if I do get it, I'm not sure I'm going to like it. Really? Well, those are the old man's orders. He wants you to keep the retainer, which I think is very fair, considering that you haven't done anything to earn it. Except bring something very fishy out into the open. Except to uncover a thief right in your own goddamn backyard. That's all, Jocko. Just as you say, Timothy. However, the orders are to stay away from the warehouse. That's what I've been told to tell you. What's your own feeling about it? I asked him. Jocko didn't answer right away. I'd say I had no feeling at all about it, he said finally. But I can understand yours. As far as Mr. Forbes is concerned, I think his principal concern right now is to avoid any possible scandal— his dearest friend is dead. A suicide. Forbes is an old man. Too old to make attachments that would mean as much as Walter Huntington meant. And after all, it's his company and his warehouse. There are no stockholders in Oceanic. The money that Huntington stole belonged to Forbes and nobody else. So long, Jocko. The investigation is off. So long, Jocko. Don't go buying yourself any trouble, Timothy. If I do, I said... It'll be all mine. No stockholders in Timothy Dane, either. Goodbye. I dropped the phone and hustled out of my office. On Broadway, I flagged a cab and gave the driver the Harmony Bar address. 
Last night I'd had time to walk over there, but now time was running out and I was in a sweat. But so was the fire department. Lots of it. A cop flagged my driver to the curb as we turned off Lexington, a block from the Harmony. I got out on the sidewalk to see what was up. I counted ten pieces of fire equipment, all jammed around the bar and the warehouse behind it, with good reason. The whole building was ablaze. End of chapter 8